The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I'm in the middle of a series of talks on this quality of wisdom. So most of you know who've been coming that um, we're using a particular list in the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis, the Ten Perfections of the Heart, the qualities that support awakening and the expression of awakening in a beautiful way. And any of these ten qualities, if developed deeply, reveal the other nine. So the one we've been talking about most recently is wisdom. And last week I, I spent some time talking about just one way to understand or to see in our own experience how wisdom naturally arises. And I'll just review that quickly because I think it's useful. Even in the course of a sit to get a sense of this natural development. So it's not so much something that we imagine happening over decades of practice, but even in a set. So the first part, and we could even say the birth of wisdom, is simply to begin to see as we're sitting, being with the breath, being with sensation, being with sounds, and in that context of being in the present moment, aware of seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling sensations, we notice feeling weighed down, caught, burdened, and stressed. Like one of my favorite short descriptions of meditation practice in this style coming out of the Thai force tradition is, let the body come into its natural ease, allow the mind to come into or rest in its natural ease, and then stay alert to see what disturbs the natural ease of the body and mind. And this is an important insight. You know, so a lot of times people, especially beginning meditators, they sit and they notice how frustrating it is to be sitting and the mind wanders or the mind starts to plan or the mind worries or the mind brings up some difficult relationship or the mind hates the pain in the knee or the pain in the back. And uh, you ask them after the sit how it went, and they, and they go, well, it wasn't good at all because you know, my mind was caught the whole time. But we, we can miss this really important insight that here we are, in a sense, you know, minding our own business, and all of a sudden, you know, we have problems. Now, isn't that amazing? And the thing is, we don't notice it so much in daily life because we're so distracted by our daily life. We are, we're not necessarily as aware of the stress and the weight and the entanglements. But when we're sitting in this more refined environment, quiet place, just paying attention to the breath, to other basic aspects of the present moment, and then we find ourselves caught or even more dramatic is you spend a lot of money to go to a beautiful retreat center with a well-known you know, Buddhist teacher, you know, only to find your mind 
entangled or caught in different ways or obsessing about a music, piece of music you've heard or a movie. It's often the case if I go on retreat. It's like in the last several months, any movie that I saw that I didn't completely digest, those scenes just will arise in my mind. You can sort of count on that happening. And so this is sort of what happens on retreat. And if we don't use that opportunity to see how the mind, in a sense, manufactures suffering out of thin air. It's like there we are in a beautiful place, sitting relatively comfortable, with nothing we have to do, which is so nice, just to be in the moment, just to be aware of the body and the breath. And all of a sudden, in a matter of moments, the mind is entangled. It's caught, it's weighed down, it's struggling. And if we can see that very clearly, <coughs> instead of coming to the conclusion that we're a failure at meditation, we should instead appreciate that we've learned something really important. What have we learned? Well, we've learned that we create our suffering right here. It's what the mind is doing right now that's creating the problem. Because, you know, like in this set, we were pretty safe here. We knew coming to Common Ground tonight that, you know, we didn't have anything else to do. We don't need to be planning anything or judging anything or even remembering anything. So any of the entanglements that might have arisen around that, that was something that was happening right here. The mind was doing something right here that was causing that stress or causing that weight. So even though we don't understand the whole mechanism, we've made a really important step, which is we're beginning to see that the mind itself creates its weight. It creates its stress. It creates its entanglements. And then, of course, we the next part of the insight that arises in practice is like, well, what do we do with that fact? So once we see how we stumble or fall into stressful states, feeling burdened over and over again, we come back and then again we fall into some entangled state of mind, disturbed state of mind. Well, we're interested in addressing it. We have a sense that uh, the problem is right here, but what to do about it? Well, just in a very organic way, we, especially if we've heard this pointed out to us, but even if we haven't had it pointed out to us by the Buddha in a clear way, we can stumble upon the need for mindfulness. It's like, what's going on? And, you know, when we're really confused, we it's actually useful because we stop projecting our expectation or our assumptions onto the moment. So when we notice that we're falling into the hole, Clint, did you bring me that poem a couple of years ago about the guy who walks and falls into the hole? <laughs> the, the autobiography in five, four, uh, five short chapters. I think you can Google it, right? And you'll yeah, get it? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's this, I won't get it all right, but Clint will help me. You know, this idea that we can walk, we can sit day after day and fall into the hole, 
and not even realize that we're falling into a hole. That's the first chapter, right? And so the second chapter is we fall into the hole, and we know when we're in the hole, we're in the hole. Is that the second chapter? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why don't you do it? <laughs> well, then don't do it, because that, that might be something to work with. Okay. <laughs> so go ahead. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. How did I get here? It's not my fault. It takes me forever to get out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in anyway. It's not my fault. How did I get here? It still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it this time, but I fall in anyway. It's my habit. But it's my fault. I see where I am. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk, but I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Clint. So this, uh, this path, we actually, if we're just aware of falling into the hole, if we just get interested in that, mindfulness will arise naturally and organically. And then if we have wise friends that are kind of reminding us of this possibility of paying attention, that we're in a hole, that we're about to walk into a hole, that we were just in a hole, that we don't want to fall in a hole. These are all things we can begin to wake up to. But that second chapter, you know, about uh, avoiding or uh, distracting, you know, trying, pretending the hole isn't there. This is a big part. It's like we don't want to locate the problem where it actually is. And so this is the, the insight in practice We know that there are holes, but now we know that the hole arises in not paying attention, or the falling into the hole arises because we're not paying attention. And we finally become a student of mindfulness, a devotee of mindfulness. This is what we bow bow down to. You know, when we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we're really taking refuge in this path of awareness as a refuge. I mean, there's many things we can pursue in this world, really beautiful things we can pursue in this world. But, you know, the short way of saying it is we're screwed unless we get interested in mindfulness. Because we'll ruin it. Out of habit, we'll ruin all the beauty in the world because we'll get attached. We won't realize that the attachment is basically signing up for suffering and stress, and one entanglement after another. So I want to, well, let me just finish the sequence I went through last week. So the first part of awakening to wisdom is just seeing how the mind gets entangled. And just noticing that some mind states are heavy. that pain of our heavy mind states, of our entangled states, 
basically waking us up. What is going on here? And then the second aspect that we can sort of trace even in a sit or even over the course of years of practice is greater clarity, greater respect, greater devotion to mindfulness, to that clear, uh, humble attention. So we're not projecting or assuming or expecting. We're, We're interested in seeing things as they are because we know one thing. We know that we don't know. You know, we know that we don't know how we're falling into that hole over and over again. So, of course, we want to be interested. We will be interested. If we know that we don't know how we end up in suffering, we're going to start paying attention. And then once we start paying attention, once we become a real student of mindfulness, start developing it, start finding ways to support it, finding ways to avoid what takes the mindfulness away, like being around things that are distracting, going down the wrong road. Then we start, the mindfulness deepens. We start not only noticing that we're in suffering states, but we start to see the whole causality, the chain of causes and, uh, causes and conditions that lead to suffering, that lead to walking around the hole, that re- lead to walking down a different street. We begin to see everything being played out moment by moment with a lot of clarity. So it's like a whole new level of competence. It's not the end, but it's a really important step. I was talking to Ramesh earlier tonight about this stage in practice where we can start to take the competence personally, like the ability to break down, deconstruct our life, to become more skillful, to know what we should refrain from, to know what's safe. We get, in a sense, excited, exuberant about our skill, that we can avoid holes. I mean, that it is. It's, in, uh, it's exciting to know that we don't have to do what we've done before. You know, think about those holes we used to fall into when we were teenagers or in our 20s or in our 30s or now I can say in my 40s. <laughs> Someday I'll be able to say, when I was in my 50s, those holes that we used to fall into, but we don't anymore. But even that, uh, there's uh, that kind of vigilance and the wanting to be careful and the wanting to be skillful and competent, even that's a little heavy. So we can use mindfulness to look at the person who's vigilant, who's careful, who's mindful. And see that even that projection of somebody who's being skillful and mindful, that's extra. That doesn't mean we don't want to be mindful, but we don't need to project the practitioner on the wisdom, on the skill. And so this is another level of the development of wisdom. So the first level is just to know that we fall into heavy states, seeing that mindfulness is the path because we know we don't know Mindfulness is the path, noticing the kind of development of skill in the, in the natural, appropriate joy and being skillful, avoiding being able to avoid holes, and beginning to see that that skill is also impersonal. Basically, to bring mindfulness to the sense of being skillful, to the one who's skillful, and teasing out that projection. 
and tasting moments of real freedom. Not even so being skillful, but not having to own it. Being nimble in life, being creative, knowing when to shut up, knowing when to step forward and to speak up, without owning that skill, that fluidity, the fluidity, you know, of skillfulness, of being competent, of knowing how to respond appropriately in the moment. That's the real freedom. It's like when somebody compliments you, knowing how to receive somebody's appreciation or gratitude without being weighed down, you know, by, oh, I'm great, or, oh, I don't know what to do with this, or I don't want to take it because I don't want to get attached to it. I mean, those are all different ways of suffering. So wouldn't it be nice to be able to receive somebody's kind words or gratitude or whatever without it being a problem, or to receive somebody's criticism or insults without it being a cause for weight, but just to take the information in, to use what's useful, to let go of the rest. So this is the last stage, not that it's a one-time stage, but the last place in this development of wisdom, which is the real experience of freedom, a heart that's released. In a moment, for a moment at least, the heart is released. In that moment, there aren't problems. doesn't mean there aren't uh, unpleasant sensations or that somehow life is perfect. It just means there isn't a problem with the conditions in the moment. And those moments, seeing a moment of freedom like that teaches us something very deep, sort of leaves an imprint in the mind that the freedom isn't about the conditions. So it supports the whole development of wisdom at each of these different stages or each of these different places. The mind, the conditioning of the mind is just less uh, dependent on this, these deep habits of, you know, these idealistic ideas or habits of thinking about what freedom looks like. You know, when I get there, when I have enough money, when I have the right partner, when I get into shape, when I lose weight, when I become a good meditator, then I can be happy. But to see that the happiness isn't about any story that we can conceive of at all. So before I open it up for discussion, I wanted to go a little further. I think last week I began to talk about passion and dispassion to teachings that are important in the way the Buddha presented this path. And I mentioned last week, I believe, that passion, actually I think it comes from uh, maybe Latin, means suffering. And it it also uh, has a sense of like a strong sensation or strong emotion, strong feeling. So there's a lot of mention of dispassion in the Buddhist teachings. And I, I looked up today all the synonyms for dispassion. And they're not all, but the great majority, maybe 85, 90% of them. This for the, I was an online dictionary, so it had lots of synonyms. I didn't even get past the letter H. They were in alphabetical order. And most of them were things you would not want at all. Aloofness. 
benumbedness, blahs, <laughs> carelessness, cold-heartedness, control, cool, disinterested, frigidity, frigidity, frostiness, hopelessness. This is what Ajahn Tinnisro said. The function of right view, or wisdom we could say, is to look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion, leading the mind to a state of non-fashioning and then on to awakening. So this is where that moment of humility, where we, we're at the point where we know we fall into holes. We know we're vulnerable into, to falling into holes, to the mind getting entangled, feeling weighed down, being attached, feeling stress. So we know that our normal way of trying to fix it keeps us falling into holes. So we're willing to try something else. There's a kind of humility. So either through trial and error or because we're fortunate enough to stumble upon some wise teachings, it occurs to us to relate, to look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion. So passion means that the mind takes a strong experience, a strong feeling, and through some magic of attachment that we call attachment, creates the experience of suffering out of it. So dispassion, well, we can't necessarily get rid of strong feeling because we're not in control of a lot of what's arising in our experience. So we might see somebody and that might bring up a lot of feeling, or we might hear something, or we might think something that triggers a lot of feeling. So the dispassion doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a feeling, but it's changing the way we relate to the feeling. You know, and the basic thing we learn in mindfulness is like a, another dimension to how we relate. Normally we have just one dimension, which is we see or hear or think something, and we react in a very predictable, habitual way. The other dimension we can learn, this other possibility, is to see, hear, think, touch something, and to be interested in it. Oh, it's like this. So does it mean that all of a sudden we're not conditioned to react, but the conditioning to react to that experience is just that. It's just another thing that can be known. Oh, there's this, there's the impulse to react. They're both just events in the mind, in the here and now. So it's not being dependent on the story of our conditioning or our habit energy, but able, I mean, this is what mindfulness means. This is, it's being able to remember this possibility, this possibility of bare, clear, simple attention, being open to things as they are. So I think in a way what we're asking in our practice is can we open to passion with dispassion? Can we be dispassionate about passion? That's where we have to start because right now there's a lot of passion. A lot of things evoke feeling, strong feeling. 
It just kind of comes with the territory. So even though an experienced meditator, you know, you might look at her or him, and they might seem so relaxed and still and peaceful, it doesn't mean there isn't passion in the sense of strong feeling. Strong emotions, strong thoughts, strong memory, strong sensation in their knee, in their back, or wherever. It just means that the mind has learned this possibility, this other dimension, to be mindful, to be open, to give permission for things to be the way that they are. Argentinus, or I read part of this last week, or maybe even this whole paragraph. So again, he says, it does, it does this by focusing on the way in which passion and desire lead to suffering and stress. It develops the mind's basic reaction to stress, the search for a way to escape from stress, from the stress, in a skillful way so that this reaction actually leads to utter release. When the mind sees without its normal bewilderment the actual process by which stress is caused, it will naturally let go of the causes. When it sees passion clearly enough to catch that passion, to catch that passion in the act of leading to stress, it will naturally develop, develop a sense of dispassion for and detachment from the passion so that it can view it simply as a mental event with no meaning in terms of anything else. So this is, this is the space that mindfulness creates. When we're mindful with the pain in the body, when we're mindful with the different emotions moving in the mind, different mental activity, the content moving in the mind, when we're mindful, then we'll notice how the mind, out of habit, wants to take that feeling associated with those thoughts or the feeling associated with the body experience, take it and in a sense run with it, proliferate, generate some drama. We'll see that and we'll see very clearly that stress. Oh, that's the hole I keep falling into. It's, I mean, it's no wonder we keep falling into the hole because we create it out of nothing. And we know this is true because we could be living a parallel life with somebody else, and one of us could be suffering a lot, and the other person might not be suffering at all. We see this all the time. We see it in our own lives. Like, I've been struggling with the cold. I know a lot of people have lately. Some flu or cold's been going around. And, you know, in one moment, I might be proliferating with ideas like, I can't get sick, I have too much to do, you know? And uh, I don't like being... No, no, no. We can go, and it can be a real problem. These sensations of whatever, you know, nose running, pressure in the head, lack of energy. We can turn it into a lot of suffering. And another moment, it's not a problem at all, feeling what I'm feeling, having the sensations I'm having. So we know that that's true. Sometimes we create holes, sometimes we don't. So if we can catch the mind in the moment of creating a hole, that's when the mind lets go. 
But we have to see that the whole is a whole. We have to see that the attachment is stress. The identification is stress and extra. It doesn't have to happen. So the last thing I wanted to bring up is this uh, teaching in the tradition, the four ways that the mind clings, or the four objects the mind clings. I mean, generally, the Buddha would teach about the five aggregates, which is a, a more complicated way of talking about the mind and body. And he would say that the tendency, the deep tendency for human beings is to cling, to grasp after experiences, physical experiences, and mental experiences. And one time he broke it down a little bit more thoroughly. And he talked about clinging to sensuality. So this is something we can you know, use once we understand the possibility of being mindful. Then we can just be attuned to the experience of being a sensitive creature. This is what sensuality means. Sensuality means we're a sensate creature. We experience sensation all the time. Hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, even thinking in a sense is sort of a sensation, especially with emotions involved. So we're clinging to the five physical senses. But can we be a sensate creature, sensitive creature, without this clinging? What would that feel look like? So it's not about not being sensitive, but just being sensitive. It's like being sensitive without adding any, anything extra to it. And just notice how many stories we tell ourselves that basically are reducing our experience to this level of sensuality. It's like we, our minds, our thinking minds, they, it revolves so much of the time around sense experiences, around wanting to sleep. That's a sensory experience. Wanting to go home and eat, thinking about what we ate for lunch. You know, liking clothes, liking this object and that object, not liking this and that. So, so much of the sense of self revolves around what we're sensitive to, what we see, what we smell, what we touch. So now let's bring up that word dispassion again. So dispassion really in this term, in this uh, context, it's really the strong sensation, like seeing something beautiful or seeing something ugly, hearing something beautiful, hearing something ugly tasting something beautiful, tasting something ugly, having a strong sensation of pleasant, strongly pleasant, strongly unpleasant sensation, but without the attachment. So the dispassion is being sensitive without the proliferation around the experience, around the sensual experience. So there's lots of opportunities to practice this kind of non-clinging because we're having sensory experiences all day long. So when you're putting on like your overcoat to go home tonight, and let's say you're missing the warm summer evenings and you're 
you don't like the weight of your winter coat, you know, and the constriction of having all that on your body. So can we, you know, that's all a story. Summer is just a story in our minds. Summer doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> really, it doesn't exist anymore. It's this now. And so we put it on, and when the mind wants to elaborate, then it's like that's the telltale sign. But can we just let that experience of the putting the coat on, putting the scarf around the neck, putting the hat on, putting the gloves on, walking out, feeling that, that strong sensation, you know, being a sensitive creature, it's a strong sensation to feel the temperature drop, drop, you know, 40 degrees or whatever it is. To allow the heart, mind to be vulnerable or exposed to strong sensations without feeling the need to do anything about it, but just to let that shock be what it is. Oh, now it's like this. And in no way does it uh, sort of diminish, like, it doesn't make us inhuman, like some of the synonyms I read. You know, it almost feels like, uh, like another one, another one of the D synonyms was disinterested. I remember just deep in print in my mind, I was sort of wandering around one of the monasteries, uh, Plum Village in southern France, there's actually several different campuses, and there was a new one, and uh, people on retreat were invited to, to go there that day, and I was sort of wandering around, checking it out, um, not in the place where everybody was, and I think where we were supposed to be. And as I rounded one corner, Thich Nhat Hanh was just coming out of the bathroom. And uh, evidently, you know, he, he is in the middle of teaching this retreat, and he probably was just about to teach, and but evidently he had just splashed some water in his face. And uh, he was just walking out, and I was pretty close to him, and I just had this, got this look like, this is somebody who was really there when he was splashing water in his face. And he was still like feeling, like letting the impact of that simple experience of water on the face and the, probably the evaporative effect, the coolness, it was a summer day, so just the coolness and just the look of somebody completely in the middle of their sensory experience was really profound for me, just, just in that simple way. And so it doesn't mean that, that uh, as a human being we're not sensitive to seeing and touching and hearing and smelling and tasting and whatever else I'm missing. It, it's actually just the opposite because because of the dropping of the proliferation, there's just so much more space for sensitivity to be alive, alive as a sensory creature in the world, feeling pain, seeing beauty, hearing beauty, hearing obnoxious sounds, but not being confused by the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of the experience. <coughs> Because, you know, he could have been coming out and going, oh my God, you know, I need my students to bring up cool, fresh water all the time because this feels so good. And, you know, so I'm going to create a new position in the monastery. The monk or nun who follows me around with a cool bowl, you know, fresh spring water so I can 
splash water on my face whenever I feel like it. You know, he could have been proliferating like that and totally missed the experience that was happening, but it didn't seem to be the case. So this is one of the four ways we cling. The other is we cling to rites, practices, precepts. Well, another way of saying this is we can start to notice clinging to the way we like to do things. And just like we can become dependent on certain sensory experiences, like I don't like non-natural fibers against my skin. I think it's wrong. You know, and then we can become somewhat obsessed about only having cotton or certain kinds of wool or silk or, you know, there's debates now whether something's actually a synthetic or a natural uh, fiber or uh, material. So all these things we, become, we, we can become obsessed about. And then things have to be a certain way. Or, you know, we go home and my wife puts her shoes here, but no, no, honey, we're putting our shoes here now. This is how it works. And it's like our suffering, our happiness, depends on things being a particular way. And then if they're not a particular way, we think somehow we should suffer because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Last week I made the announcement how people, this is an hour and a half program that people should plan on staying until 9 o'clock. It's because, I mean, I think it's good for people to, if you can, to commit to being here tonight. But mostly it was because I feel it's disturbing for people to leave before 9. You know, it's like something comes up in my mind and I don't know how to deal with that. <laughs> I don't know how to remain happy when people are walking out before 9 o'clock. <laughs> So we all are creating these rites and rituals about basically like trying to define our life so that we feel safe. And it's like hopeless. So we want to, you know, in our practice during the week, we want to start looking at clinging to certain ways of doing things and how it's hopeless. Now, it doesn't mean we, that there aren't wholesome routines to develop in our life. We're just talking about the clinging. So just in the same way, there's nothing wrong with splashing cool spring water on your face and just feeling the refreshment that comes with that. There's nothing wrong with being sensitive to that. But clinging to it isn't going to help in a suffering. Same with routines. Developing, cultivating wholesome routines, getting up every morning and sitting, or sitting in the evening every day, or going on regular retreats, or coming to the center once a week to hear some teachings and hear other people share the practice, that seems really good. But to cling to it, even to cling to something like getting to common ground every Wednesday night. So let's say you're sick and you can't come. Does it make sense to be home suffering because you're not here? It doesn't help to be lamenting, oh, I should be at common ground. I mean, if you're at common ground, it's appropriate to appreciate being here. And when you're not at common ground, it's appropriate to appreciate doing whatever you're doing. It doesn't help to uh, resist the way things are because it's already this way. You know, I'm sick and I'm home. So this is an experience to open to. It's not an, it's not an excuse to create the thought, the story of I might have been at Comcrown. And then to cling. It's like we create something in our imagination and then we want it 
And to want that, we have to hate this. You know, I'm kind of being provocative with my words. But you get the idea. Out of nothing, we've created a hole, and then we've jumped in. And now we've got a problem. Because in our imagination, we have something, oh, and that makes this, oh, and then we suffer. So we cling to rites and rituals, ways of doing things. We cling to views. And one of the views we cling to is the theories of self, who we think we are. So this is another thing we can notice this week, all the different ways we cling to certain views, opinions that we have. Like uh, I read a little bit from Tanisro's Wings to Awakening book, Ajahn Tanisro, a well-known American teacher, Buddhist monk. And uh, right view is really defined as seeing all views as, as just uh, thoughts in the mind, just events in the mind. So... We, when we have an opinion about something or somebody, well, it's not an opinion isn't wrong in and of itself as long as we recognize that that opinion is just an event in the mind. But when we take the opinion to be more than that, like, I think this person's great and I'm right, then that clinging is suffering. So we can have opinions, we can have views, but those views are moment to moment. And this is actually a really nice way to have views and opinions because it means we're really open because, of course, we're constantly getting new information. So we don't want our views to be fixed. We want them to be really fluid. Right now, this is how I see things. You know, And then we're interested. And as soon as we hear new information, we sort of integrate it. Well, that, that person doesn't seem to know what they're talking about, so I'm, I'm going to weigh it this way, you know, and let it adjust my view slightly. Or this person seems reasonable, seems to know what they're talking about. I'll weigh their information more heavily. I'll let it have more of an impact on my view. So intelligence isn't based, you know, the sense of our intelligence isn't based so much on how strong our views are, but how capable we are at constantly adapting our views to new information, the new ways of seeing things and hearing what we hear, how we've analyzed things. So I'll leave it here. Uh, there's more to this, but we'll pick it up next week. But I want to leave at least 10 minutes to hear from people other questions you have about the talk. Or any examples from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? What you've seen from your practice around these different ways of clinging, around the development of wisdom in your life that you'd like to share? So what comes to mind? Yes, what's your name? Michael. Hi, Michael. Um, what I wanted to say was my uh, speaking practice today was Like, see with whatever sensation, kind of like exactly what you were talking about. Because, uh, you know, 
Yeah, thanks, Michael. Pain is such a good teacher for us. Very few people get through their practice without uh, a lot of instruction from pain. <laughs> I mean, not just physical pain, but a lot of physical pain, and then, of course, other kinds of pain. And that's the way to configure it, to really see it as a teacher, that it has something to teach us. In other words, do, do we need to immediately assume pain is a problem? Can we have a different relationship to it? Other thoughts people have? Yeah, T. that's really important and I think it's a, another way of saying some of the things I said earlier in the talk which is uh, you know one phase of the practice is really getting jazzed by the competence like being able to negotiate life in a way to avoid the bumps and really feeling excited about that confidence but a deeper kind of liberation is these glimpses we get where there's a sense a deepening sense that it's okay that life is messy. It's okay that my mind does get caught. We're not afraid of the mind getting caught because we have confidence that we can work with it. And that's a, that's a really liberating insight that gets slowly, I think in most cases, slowly cultivated in practice. And again, I didn't want to uh, imply that this is sort of just the linear uh, development of insight, but it's, it's really cyclical. Like, Sometimes we're really just at the beginning where we're, we once again are going to have to discover that there are holes, you know, that things get heavy. And then we'll discover the value of mindfulness. And, but what you're talking about is sort of that third stage I was talking about where a different relationship with messiness. And that's, right, that's exactly part of that insight, is that the, the freedom you do notice, you're not going to cling to it because you understand life is messy. Insights go. It's like the clarity falls away. But part there's another kind of clarity that can appreciate that and not resist the fog from coming in, you know, the greed or the aversion from coming back in. Because, like you said, we understand that this too will change. It won't be that way forever. Yeah, and then Casey, after Stacy. Um, I was just thinking about the 
terms, the fifth chapter would be, uh, you do go down a different road, but it's actually the same road, but it's different because you're different. <laughs> but something's different, that's the point, you know, it's really different. Yeah. No, that's not different. Casey, did you have a thought? the West uh, English language is passion at least how it's used includes both both the strong sensation or strong <coughs> excuse me feeling and the attachment but in Buddhism you know they're careful to break those apart so we have Vedana feeling and we have Tanha clinging and it's that they often you know follow one another unless there's wisdom there and we can be with a strong feeling without having to go to clinging. But we have to have wisdom. I mean, we have to be willing to be open to the feeling. You know, we have to be willing to be sensitive. Because being afraid of strong feeling doesn't work. I mean, it can work initially. Like, if we know, if, if we know that if I'm around this kind of experience, I'm going to just get obsessed. And then that it could be useful to be a little bit afraid. Okay, I'm not going to go to the bar because when I'm in a bar, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to get in trouble. And so, but eventually we don't want to be afraid of being around alcohol. But as long as we need to be afraid, we should be afraid of it. But that's not the end of practice because that would mean the whole, you know, the, the development of practice is just to, you know, be really tight and careful. And as, as, as though, even though that's better than being really negligent and just sort of falling into holes randomly and not even realizing uh, how much we're under our habit energy to fall into holes, still it's, it's a kind of an uncomfortable ending for the practice to have to be you know, afraid of strongly pleasant and strongly unpleasant experiences because of what monster might arise from our conditioning you know, when we're around something really attractive or really unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think we have to end with this. Okay.
wanted to comment on the monster because it just occurred to me. Your uh, our session last week really really affected me in a way that like my house burned down and there's been a lot of things going on and I've been kind of being a victim, as my friend Gordon has pointed out to me and many others, letting people walk all over me and not confronting some weird nothing. So I was thinking I need to confront these people, but somehow in my mind I was thinking I'm not good with being angry. I, I associated confronting them with anger. And so after last week, I thought, can I confront them with wisdom? Yeah. And I did that on Monday night and yesterday. I did that. And it was amazing. And at one point, even when there was a, a, a lack of um, agreement, I, I actually just said, well, it is what it is. And I, you know, I channeled you, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, or the Buddha, yeah. yeah. But it diffused it in the yeah. end. Yeah. There was understanding, there wasn't grief, but there was understanding. So it really amazingly worked. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> all the men and women who've been doing the practice and passing it down and it's so practical. That's the amazing thing. And this is really important to understand because because we do have this ritual in this path of practice of sitting in a quiet uh, place where we're, where we're somewhat withdrawn from the world, it can be confused. We can be confused about the purpose of the practice. You know, the point of the practice is to be able to be in that situation without creating a lot of suffering for ourselves or others. But this ritual is really nice. We don't want to get attached to it. But we want to appreciate how potent it is to hear the teachings and to put them into practice in a relatively simple environment of a meditation period. So that in that not so simple, complicated situation you were in, the teachings can arise and we can be skillful in a way that we might not have been otherwise. So that's a good place to end. Thanks, Kay, for sharing that. Let's just take a few seconds. We'll let go of the words. It's always nice to take a moment and just appreciate being